Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, as we sit here to record this podcast in the past, which is the present for the listener, or, well, it's the listener's future. I think I understand Tenet. Um, <laughs> it is January 25th. The reason that it is January 25th is because in the listener's present, which is actually the listener's future, which now I feel like I'm spiraling even by saying past, present, yeah, you, and future you've this even many lost times. me, and I'm doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm driving across the country, as I mentioned on our podcast last week, and has, as has been mentioned on the podcast a few times in the last month. And so we were unable to record a real podcast. So instead, we are going to be running an old episode for our friends who have not had a chance to hear it yet. For those listeners who have come to the podcast within the last year, this was our first episode of 2021 with Rob Maines of Baseball Prospectus, who writes and talks and learns and researches so much more in the practical world about MLB's owners. You know, whereas you and I work in the theoretical and in the political, Rob works in reality. And we brought him on to discuss what does it actually mean to own a baseball team in the 21st century, particularly in the 2020s now? How much has the baseball ownership model changed? Where is the state of the league now versus when it was really revolutionizing itself as a business? What stage of baseball capitalism are we living under? All of those fun questions that you might want real answers to as opposed to opinionated answers to. Yeah, we get into some really, really interesting stuff. I mean, I think this is one of the more interesting conversations we've ever had on this podcast just because it shined a light on so much of these things that we kind of talk around, right? Owners cooking the books, owners sticking their hand into the you know money equation wherever they can, like actually kind of putting a name to these things and laying out how this happens was really fascinating to me. I mean, Rob, Rob has a, a background in Wall Street and is actually able to talk about how this works when you are inside the company. It's a perspective that uh, famously you and I uh, are unable to give, having having not sold our souls yet. Again, hypocritical of you to say knowing that you own the company that produces this podcast. You own 50% mm. of the company that produces this podcast. Anyway, Rob can explain what amortization is, basically. That was a, yes. that was a long way of saying Rob can explain what amortization is. Um, it is the podcast that we most frequently point people back to when they say, hey, what do you guys talk about on Tipping Pitches? We didn't want to put nothing on the feed while I was doing my trip, but it's very impossible to record a podcast while driving across country. So uh, we decided to rerun this old episode with Rob Maines. So without further ado, let's cut to that. All right, Alex, we are now very, very lucky to be joined by Rob Maines, a writer at Baseball Prospectus who wears many, many hats. Rob, thank you for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Rob, we have been talking a lot throughout the history of this podcast about 
I'll call it loosely stuff that owners tell the baseball public um, <laughs> about their finances. But Alex and I are not financial experts. You are. Um, and so we wanted to invite you on the show and kind of demystify a little bit of the concepts of that we that we talk about on this show frequently, which is, you know, owners claiming losses and uh, small market teams saying that they can't afford superstars. But before we get into all of that, I want to talk a, a little bit about your background and how you got into this type of writing at Baseball Prospectus, because you're clearly approaching this with a level of expertise that not a lot of baseball writers come to it with. So how, how did you end up at Baseball Prospectus and what is your financial background that you can approach some of these baseball teams and organizations and franchises um, with so much kind of background knowledge? Yeah, uh, I spent 25 years as a Wall Street equities analyst, which means I recommended stocks to investors, mostly big institutions like pension funds and mutual funds and stuff. And so I spent basically all my time and that job looking at financial statements, analyzing the finances of companies and figuring out what was viable, what wasn't, and what their outlooks were. And so when I got involved with writing about, I'd always been interested in baseball. Um, I'm old enough to have remembered the first Bill James books, you know, that hit the mass market. And I'd always been right, interested in that part of the game, but I never really devoted much except, uh, you know, my reading time to it since the day job. And when I stopped doing that a few years ago, um, I started to attend some baseball uh, events. And at one of them, Rob Arthur, who's one of my uh, fellow writers of Baseball Prospectus, suggested I submit some stuff to Baseball Prospectus. And I've been writing there since 2016, mostly about what one of my fellow writers calls uh, financial minutiae. But, uh, you know, the, enough, I'm sorry, not fine, statistical minutia. But every now and then, you know, ownership or Manfred or somebody, they come up with these statements that are so transparently uh, fabricated that, you know, it's kind of low-hanging fruit in terms of writing about that, given what my background is. This is this episode is essentially our our works cited for the past three and a <laughs> half years of this podcast. We we actually want to um, dig into that statistical minutia because um, I think you know we we blather on um, about how owners are are lying or whatever, but I think we're really interested in kind of what it actually means when they when they say they're losing money or whatever. Um, before we get kind of too too deep in that rabbit hole um i'm i'm curious just from your perspective what makes the the prospect of buying a major league baseball franchise appealing to a billionaire like from a business perspective from an investment perspective what is there because valuations are are skyrocketing and clearly though there's a market yeah, Alex, you know, that kind of the key angle that I come at in a lot of my criticisms is management, management of ownership. Um, when you're looking at the, now, one of the key differences between buying a baseball team now and buying one, say, in the 40s, 50s, like any time before really the 80s or 90s, is that the people buying baseball teams now are 
phenomenally wealthy individuals who are buying them as investments. For most of baseball's history, baseball owners were people whose business was baseball. And if their baseball team didn't do well, they didn't do well. Bill Vack, um, you know, Charlie Finley made a lot of money in insurance, but he mostly was a baseball executive. Uh, Calvin Griffith, people like that. Baseball was the family business. And when it's your family business, you have a little bit of a different perspective than you do if it's what I would call kind of a passive investment, where you're putting a lot of money into it, but what you're seeking to do is to get a return from that money. Not unlike if you know you guys were to buy 100 shares of Apple or something like that. Um, and what makes a baseball team investment different from that 100 shares of Apple, I would argue, is things that should lower your expectations of returns rather than increase them. Because for one thing, if you buy shares of a stock, you're taking the risk that that company that, whose stock you own is going to go bankrupt or something bad's going to happen to it. And while we certainly saw a challenging year financially for baseball teams in 2020, we've learned over the last few years, they can't go bankrupt. If the McCourts run the Dodgers into the ground or if the Expos near bankruptcy, MLB will st- step in and backstop. So the company is not going to go to zero. And if you have an investment where your risk, your downside risk is limited, that should mean that your upside is going to get you know, brought down a little bit. And it's not. The second thing that you're buying when you're buying a baseball team as opposed to buying shares of Apple is you're buying notoriety. You get to be in the public eye. You know, you get interviewed by the local papers. Um, if your team is successful, you might get uh, to have a trophy handed to you. You get to bring your buddies down to the locker room with you and all these famous athletes call you Mr. instead of your first name. Um, you, you get uh, invited to be on boards of charities. There's a lot of intangible benefits, public benefits to owning a baseball team. But again, those aren't financial benefits. But you think that those things would lower your investment return. So if you're buying a share of stock, you say, you know, over the long term, good years, bad years, I want to make, you know, seven, eight percent on average every year. That's about what you can expect to get from investment in stocks. You would think that a baseball owner would say, well, since I got no risk of this thing going to zero, since, you know, there's scarcity value and there's, you know, because the, of the way things are set up, nobody else is going to come into my market. And since I get all these kind of psychological and tangible benefits, you know, if I can do four or five percent, that'd be pretty good considering everything else that I'm getting, especially considering this is not my livelihood. It's just, you know, a billion dollars I got laying around that I can put to use. Um, and what I find so galling about baseball ownership now is they get far more returns than that far in excess of what you and I could get if we invest in the stock market. And they simultaneously uh, claim that they're not making it, but also it's never enough. And I, I just find that tough to take. I want to dig into so, so many things that you said there, but I, <laughs> I, I would love to dig into um, the part that you mentioned about the McCourts and the Expos. And you know, even I, I'm wearing a Mets hat right now, even some of the stuff that the Wilpons have claimed over the years. Um, when, when owners are claiming massive losses, knowing that they have the safety net of MLB to step in, first of all, 
what does that look like? I'd love to hear um, what the most likely scenario is that you think is happening when an owner says we lost X amount of money. So John Middleton comes out and says we lost $2 billion because of the pandemic in 2020. Um, and then post facto, what what happens when Rob Manfred comes in? What happens when MLB comes in and says we will back you? Is it MLB's credit being able to extend larger loans and pass that along to teams? Or is it funds that MLB has set aside in case of something like a bankruptcy of a team? You know, whether that be from uh, the sale of BAMTech or whether that be from, you know, dividends on something like BAMTech, which they still own part of. Um, what does that look like when that happens? Yeah, Bobby, the key word that you said there, by the way, we've talked about their losses, is the word claim. <laughs> they claim the losses. Well, there's a couple of things going on. In the case of the Mets specifically, the Mets were running low on funds. And so, yeah, MLB loaned the money at... They weren't, at the time, they weren't ridiculously low rates, but they were low rates. And it's questionable whether Wilpons would have been able to borrow that money um, in the market at all, and certainly not the same rates. They did pay it back, though. I think the more egregious case is, is something that went on with the Expos, where the Expos, for a lot of reasons, were in rough financial shape. And MLB basically just bought the team. That was an MLB-owned franchise for a few years until they were able to find new ownership in Washington. There's an article, I think it was in Deadspin, a couple of years ago, that somebody got their hands on a slideshow that the Ricketts family had used in deciding to buy the Cubs. And one of the slides in the slideshow, and I regret I didn't keep it, was one where they said that one of the attractive things about investing in baseball is that you can't go bankrupt, that MLB has money. Yeah, they've got of cash set aside like a rainy day type thing where they can step in and you know if it looks like you're not going to make it you'll make it because mlb isn't going to let a team go under and so consequently when they claim that they're losing money um and the day that that middleton two billion dollar loss thing subsequently i think first it was changed to well that's how much all of mlb lost and then it was it was a Bill Madden article. And Bill Madden's a great journalist. I'm sure that these are numbers that were given to him. And then it kind of like just disappeared from the whole article. The operative word there is claim. Now, you can lose money as a baseball team. The best uh, uh, estimates that we get is from Forbes every year. Uh, they put out estimates of how much teams made last year. And by their, or in every year, and by their estimates in 2019, which is the most recent data, and obviously you can't really look at 2020 being a normal year, the Marlins lost money. Everybody else made money. <laughs> and yet, they were still an appealing buy just a couple of years ago, right? Oh, someone, they were losing more money then too, yeah. Right, yeah. exactly. And yet someone decided to fork fork over $1.2 billion for them. So clearly, yeah. clearly there was something appealing there. Well, yeah, I spent you know, a little time digging into some of the Braves reports because they're publicly owned by Liberty yeah. Media. And, you know, they, from 2018 to 2019, they had an 8% increase in revenue, which is it's pretty good when you're working at numbers that large. You know, you're adding 60 or $50 million per year in revenue. And then I think sinking that into other projects that become very expensive so that it looks like you're not quite making as much of a profit margin. Um, but anyway, I cut you off, Rob. What were you saying? Yeah. 
Well, no, the, the Braves are a unique example or a unique case in baseball because they aren't owned by a rich guy and all their finances are private. They do have to report them publicly. The thing is that um, their public disclosures don't go into a whole lot of detail. And yeah. they're owned by a conglomerate that's got a lot going on. So you don't know for sure what money is coming out of the left pocket going into the right one. Um, but yeah, they, they, they certainly, they, they weren't losing money in 2019. Alex, you, you mentioned the Marlins. And I think that might have been the first finance article I wrote for Baseball Perspective was after Loria, who was losing a lot of money, sold them for you know a ton of money. And I said that Jeffrey Loria is actually the prototype of what a baseball investor should look like. Not that you should imitate Jeffrey Loria. But Jeffrey Loria <laughs> was an art investor. And what he, so what he would do is he would buy, you know, paintings, statues, whatever, um, with the assumption that at some point in the future, he was going to be able to sell them for a lot more than what he paid for them. He wasn't going to make any money on them in between. In fact, in between, he's losing money because he got to store it and he got to insure it. But you know that that business model where you're making an investment in something that's going to pay off in the future and you lose a little money in between is pretty common for most types of investments like that. Baseball, for some reason, you also make money in between, which makes it different from most types of investments. So. To that point, um, recently, and far be it from me to to quote Scott Boris with a straight face on this podcast. Let's um, go. But we're going to do that anyway. Um, at the at the virtual winter meetings, he said um, that in 2020, a lot of teams lost profits. But we know this: in operating the game and having baseball games, teams make money even without fans. We know that players playing baseball games makes money for MLB teams. And I, I was just hoping that you could maybe break that down for us a little bit. And when, when we say that teams are making money, what those streams of income actually look like. Because when, when teams look back on the 2020 season and say, we lost money, they're talking about a very, a very narrow view of that income stream, right? Which is, which is money at the gate, money that fans right. are forking over to buy a $16 beer or, right. or whatever it is. Um, it's funny, there's so Alex, much more I, to it than that. <laughs> I want to add to you really quickly and then let you finish asking the question. But I was reading about the Braves expenditures when they publicly reported them. And even though they are very generic, as Rob said, um, in 2018 or in 2019, they had a lot more um, a lot higher expenses than they had in 2018. And they attributed that to higher attendance. They had to pay more for concessions. So they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. It's like, hey, we lost all of this money because fans didn't show up. But hey, in 2019, we had to spend all of this money because fans showed up. But anyway, Alex, you were saying. No, yeah, I want to I wanna throw it over to, to Rob to maybe demystify this a little bit. Yeah, I'll be honest. I don't know if I believe Boris hundred percent on this, but certainly, yeah, if you're just talking about your about reductions in revenue without talking about all the expenses that you save, not having to pay anyone at the ballpark by only paying, you know, ball players for 60 games, you're missing the, the boat. The way that um, MLB finances work, and this is straight out of Forbes research, is that about 30% of overall revenues are gate receipts, you know, 
uh, which we've got ticket, luxury boxes, all that sort of stuff. And another 9% are other stadium revenues for things like parking, uh, merchandise that you sell at the stadium. In some cases, that's concessions, but a lot of times, you know, you have someone else do the concessions and just get a fee from them. But so overall, 39% of baseball revenues are gate, are attendance related. There are things that you get at the ballpark. There's also about 30% that's national broadcast contracts and 21% that's local broadcast contracts. So contracts, so over half of revenues, it comes from media. It doesn't come from um, anything that, um, that you're doing at the local level. And you can make a pretty strong argument that that is all kind of free money. It doesn't involve any outlay on the part of teams if you're going to ascribe you know, salary costs to what, you're, uh, what happens at the ballpark. And then there's another 10% of revenues. It's various types of sponsorship and licensing deals. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know how those worked in the short season. Um, so you can probably assume that most of 39% of revenues went away, that they took a haircut on about half of their revenues. Um, but there's a corresponding, you know, significant decrease in salaries to ball players where they paid, you know, over 162 of what they normally would have to pay. Um, a lot of teams, not all, but a lot of teams either cut staff or furloughed staff or reduced payments. Um, you obviously don't have to pay seasonal workers. There was no expenses for minor leagues since there wasn't a minor leagues season. So there was also a pretty significant uh, reduction in expenses. And if you look at the year 2019, they made about a 14.5% margin on their revenues. And for um, the, the 30 teams together, that works out to a profit of about $1.5 billion. And so unless they lost over $1.5 billion compared to what they did in 2019, and I think that's, that's possible, um, they could have still eked out a profit. My guess is that there may be a handful of teams that made some money. Most of them probably lost money. But, you know, this is, I mean, there's, if you look at any other type of investment, you're going to have some years you make money, some years you lose money. And certainly the problems that baseball experienced in 2020 are not indicative of any kind of long-term downward trend. They're a one-off. Yeah. And, and I'll say like, that's kind of the, the gamble that you make by being on the ownership side of a business in that when you have rainy days or rainy years, or in the case of the pandemic, hopefully only a rainy 18 months, um, you kind of have to be the umbrella for your business because there's nothing that the individual players or certainly nothing that the seasonal workers can do to ge generate more revenue in the middle of a pandemic. And that's the, that's the literally the price that you pay for having gotten to make money every year hand over fist for the last however many decades that they've owned the team. Right. No stock goes up in value every year. You're going to have some down. I want to... At the risk of opening up a can of worms here, I want to ask what you make of the, I guess we can call it the the real estate boom among MLB teams. And you can take that to mean one of two things, I guess, in that teams are always trying to build new stadiums or that teams are always trying to, quote unquote, revitalize the area around stadiums. Um, 
So I'd love to hear your perspective on why that seems to be a trend now. It's obviously been written and talked about, um, you know, from a socioeconomic perspective, um, from a gentrification perspective. But from a strictly financial perspective, why do you think that is in vogue right now? Um, well, there's a couple things that are going on. The building, you know, the the retail slash uh dining slash shopping slash hotel space around the ballpark. I think it's a consequence of a couple of things. One is you've got ownerships that have a ton of money and can buy up the land around their ballpark as well as, you know, the ballpark itself and develop it. And then on top of that, you've got really low interest rates right now. So make, you know, your, your payback on these investments is pretty good. Um, it's, it has led to one of the more galling statements, in my opinion, that Manfred has made, where a few months ago, he cited how bad things were in baseball, and he talked about how teams have taken on record levels of debt. Now, if they're taking on debt in order to meet payroll, that's a bad thing. If they're taking out a $150 or $300 million loan to develop this, you know, kind of... Uh, mall around their ballpark that's that's a wise business expense yeah. and to use that to cry poor mouthing and that's like i say it's just galling to to claim something like that. so when you it assumes at, a fundamental misunderstanding from the general public that manfred is speaking to about how business growth works right yeah well it, it lumps all debt together. look you know some debt's bad credit card debt's bad you got a lot of student loans that's bad if you borrow money to build a, you know, a theme park around your ball club that's going to cash you ten to twenty million dollar checks every year, that's not bad. But he tried, you know, he used the the scary word debt to make it sound like things are a lot worse for teams than they are. Then the thing with stadiums that's been going on forever, and it's another thing that, you know, the economist in me finds really offensive, frankly, because there's this economic term called rent seeking where companies seek to use their power to get the government to do favors for them that they don't that the government doesn't extend to other companies like my dad was a small businessman at a small shoe company and they built a warehouse once in St. Paul Minnesota which is where I'm from now when they built their warehouse they had to build it themselves the government didn't build the warehouse for them. And, you know, it caused a lot of truck traffic on their road. So they had to make some improvements on the road. They had to pay for the, themselves. The government didn't make the road improvements and the new exit off the freeway to uh, go to the ballpark that the, the, the teams get. So on top of all the other complaints I have about, about contemporary ownership and the returns they get is they're also rent seekers. They're kind of putting their thumb on the scale in terms of not just what they get, but also where they stand competitively with other industries in their market. And it, you know, it just makes it more, more distasteful, but from their point of view, more profitable. So I want to be clear in in all this discussion right that we really kind of have no idea what major league baseball's finances look like right either from a a large scale like major league baseball the corporation um 
or team to team basis, right? Because as we've mentioned, that the the books are are largely closed to the the public. They are. I think the Forbes data give a. They're probably close to reality, but we certainly don't know exactly what's going on. Right. Right. So, because teams, I, I think that when when an owner says we lost money, there is a kernel of truth to that, right? Like there, maybe you did not generate the the revenue that you expected to generate, um, and therefore that is that is lost. Um, I don't know projected revenue or something like that. I mean, can you explain that to me a little bit? Because because well, there it, it's true to to an extent if you squint, right? Right. Well, yeah. The there's a couple ways they could they could fund that. One, if the budget is to make $10 million and you make $9 million, you can claim that you lost money because you didn't hit your, your budget. But another thing that, that you can do, and you're not being as disingenuous in, in saying it, is... <laughs> There's um, levels to it. <laughs> yeah. Is that when, like the, when I told you that baseball teams had a margin of 14.5%, that's operating income, which is what they get from operating the business. If you buy, like, take um, Steve Cohen. Steve Cohen bought the Mets, and he's inherited a lot of things from the Wilpons. He inherited, you know, the Mets own part of the stadium. Um, he inherited the payroll. And under accounting law, this isn't, he's not doing anything disingenuous. This is what the law says you do, is that you can amortize those expenses, which is that you can take a slice of that every year as a charge against your earnings because you're saying, hey, here's some investment I made. Eventually, I'm going to have to replace it. And so as I have to replace it, I'm going to I'm going to whittle down its value. And that's a charge against your earnings. It doesn't, he, if, if, if the Mets make, say, $5 million this year, I'm just making up a number, it's going to make the same $5 million, whether there's any kind of non-cash charges or not. Um, and But if you want to claim that they're the same type of expenses, maybe some teams lose money. One of my buddy Manfred's also outrageous <laughs> things that he said was he included new issuances of debt as something that reduces your income. So you made $5 million, but you had to issue $20 million of new debt. That's 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 just preposterous. Not how it works, you know. I make two million this year, and by the way, I won't write the website. I won't make two million. But if I make two million, subscribe this to year, Baseball Prospectus, everyone. Yeah, and I buy a house for three million, and I take out a two and a half million dollar mortgage to do it. That doesn't mean I lost half a million dollars, but that's sort of what Manfred is. Uh, suggesting. So when they talk about losses, there's kind of like varying degrees of disingenuousness that's in there. And the sad thing is, there might be some owner who's going to completely level with us and tell us, you know, this was a rough year. We lost about 10 mil. And, you know, if we brought in forensic accountants to look at that, you'd say, yeah, you know, he really did. But it's in such a cacophony of you know, misleading half truths. That it's going to get lost. Right, right. And and I wonder, you know, I, 
I wonder what the most streamlined way to kind of cut through some of that crap would be. And I frequently come back to the appreciation of franchise value because that seems to be the only part that is ever left out by the owners in that I bought my, you know, you wrote an article about Cleveland recently. They bought that baseball team at $323 million. And if they sold it now, it would be over a billion dollars, undoubtedly. And so I wonder how you think that plays into the bigger picture of all of this, of the state of MLB ownership in that the franchise values have been skyrocketing over the last couple decades and every sale has been sort of a positive transaction, no matter how you invested in your team, no matter whether you were Jeffrey Loria or Fred Wilpon or whoever else has sold in the last couple of decades. Bobby, I think that's exactly it. Again, if you go back, what, 60 years or so, for Bill Veck, what's really important is how much money he makes every year, what his profit is, what his losses are, because that's what he's going to take home. For the current class of ownership, it's an investment. It's a big investment, but it's like it's part of their stock, bond, and real estate holdings that make them billionaires. And the way that you gauge those investments is how well they do year after year as an investment, how much they appreciate, rather than what kind of dividend they throw back to you in any given year. So yeah, and that's one of the things I've talked about how Forbes every year gives us an estimate of revenues and earnings that companies make. They also give an estimate of franchise values. And when franchise values are going up every year, the owners of those investments really don't have a whole lot to complain about. Yeah. It's the kind of thing where like you you look at yeah, a, a graph of uh, franchise valuations versus, I don't know, another metric like attendance or something like that. And there's no correlation between how many people are coming to see your games versus how much your franchise actually costs, correct? Oh, absolutely. You, you can, it's pretty easy to jack up your prices sufficiently that your attendance is adversely effective or affected but you make more on the bottom line because you get more per person walking in the ballpark and you probably get to have fewer people working at the ballpark if there's 10%, you know, fewer people standing in line for concessions or making a mess that you got to clean up afterwards. Sure. Yeah. It, and that's, that's, you know, teams talk about uh, you know, that they're concerned about people being able to go to the ballpark. It, the lack of accessibility to uh, for families to be able to afford a day at the ballpark is completely at the feet of owners. They're the ones who set the price. It's not based on how much players make. Otherwise, we'd see them drop prices whenever they cut payroll. It's solely because of business decisions that are being made in terms of extracting maximum profit. Yeah. I want to I want to cut out those exactly, 20 just seconds. An incredibly right important point um, <laughs> that we've tried to yell about so many times and never said quite so eloquently. Um, all this being said, Rob, it, is there a better model for baseball ownership that you see existing in the world or in the medium term future? Because so many of them, so many owners have now kind of accepted this as common practice and common wisdom, you know, doing all of these things that we've discussed over the last uh, 35 minutes or so. Um, and, and why would they stop? Because they make money year over year and then they make a big chunk of money when they sell a team. So I'm wondering from your perspective, is there a way to kind of wrestle this back? 
clone Mike Illich. <laughs> and the, he's a billionaire owner of the Tigers, and all he wanted to do was win a world championship. And that team lost money. Um, I was actually in Detroit at a Tigers game in like 08, 09 during the recession. And at Comerica, they've got two enormous um, billboards, one for GM, one for Ford, out in the outfield. And somebody there told me that because of the Great Recession, Illich wasn't charging either company for the signage. You know, he felt that it was a civic duty to support Detroit's biggest, biggest industry. Um, so he did that for free. He maintained a big payroll because he wanted to, he really wanted to win. Um, lacking, lacking that possibility, you know, and speaking of the Mets, I hold out a little bit of hope for Steve Cohen. For you and me both, reasons. my friend. <laughs> well, you know, for one thing, he's got a ton of money. For another thing, like Loria, although he's certainly not as odious as Loria, um, he's, he, he's an art investor. Art investors, in my opinion, they get the idea of an investment that doesn't give you a lot of money year after year, just increases in value. Um, I think that incentivizing winning would help in that, like I said, you can raise ticket prices and you can lower your attendance and you make more money. 51% of revenues are national and local broadcasts. Those aren't tied to winning. Certainly to the degree, what you get at the ballpark in terms of people going through the turnstiles is, but if you can jack up prices, that that insulates you as well. So I think the part of the economic model that, you know, without getting overly cute in terms of what kind of incentives you want to create for management, make it like it was when Bill Vec owned, you know, his clubs, make it more profitable to win than to lose. That would um, that would make, I think, the incentives at least better aligned with what the public would like to see. And I think it would result in some changes of behavior. When you say um, make it more, give more incentive for to to win rather than to lose. Can you expand upon that a little bit? Because I think that maybe is kind of a backward idea to someone like myself who doesn't have experience in this to think that there would be any incentive to lose, right? So like from a from a business perspective, if a team is shedding payroll and is quote unquote rebuilding, what does that I guess mean? What what is the financial um what is attractive about that from a from a financial perspective? Well, let, let's take uh, let's take the current Tigers, uh, the the second generation Illich Tigers as an example. Mm-hmm. They've been they've been in a pretty severe rebuild. They've lost a ton of games. Um, they've shed a lot of payroll. And what have they taken a hit? Well, they've taken a hit at the gate certainly from when they were you know when they were consistently winning the Central. Um, but they still have their TV and radio contracts, both local and national. Um, I haven't looked at the data, but I would guess they haven't had to cut ticket prices at all at Comerica. So the people who are showing up at the ballpark are still paying the same amount of money. And they've saved a lot of money on payroll. You know, Other than Miguel Cabrera, I don't know who on that team is even in eight digits of income. 
Uh, Jordan Zimmerman, I think, was there, but he's not with them anymore. So they saved a ton of money on payroll. And the benefits that they've also reaped from that is you get, you know, you get to draft good ball players. You get now you still have to develop them, but there's an incentive in that regard that the lower you are in the standings, the higher your draft choice is. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know. I'm not well versed in what teams benefit from revenue sharing, but yeah. the example of Pittsburgh is Pittsburgh's actually the, the example Rays, I should give you. Because the Pirates, whenever I write anything bad about ownership um, and the way that they behave, there are always some people who say, you know, it's their their investment, they can do with it as they want. That's true. We don't have to like it. But I never hear that from Pirates fans. Pirates fans hate their ownership. So <laughs> those guys, you know, they just traded Josh Bell. I mean, why in the world would you go watch that team anymore? But they get great draft choices. They get revenue sharing checks. That team is still profitable, even though ownership is kind of done. You think if you wanted to make sure you really alienate the fan base, get rid of McCutcheon, get rid of call, you know, and they, it just, it just continues, but you can still make money. So I'm not saying that there's an incentive to be bad, but there's no real downside to it. And yeah. to get good, you got to spend money. You got to, you got to whittle down your profits. Yeah. And if, 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 you know, if worse teams were like, if you went into a lottery for the top draft pick instead of, you know, like, like they do in, in the NBA, um, that might do something. If your revenue sharing was based in part on how well you do, that could that could do things. But there's not a whole lot of reason if you're a profit-maximizing owner who doesn't care that much about winning to change your ways. Yeah. Well, it's interesting how so many, I think, odious is a word that you use. So many odious elements of the baseball landscape right now can come back to that exact point in that you know you look at the save america's pastime act um making it so that they don't have to pay minor leaguers so that that part of it is um less expensive to them um and even you look at the minor leagues in general and how they're shrinking they're making the concept of baseball less exclusive so that these families that we're discussing who can't even really go to the ballpark affordably now can't go to any ballpark affordably including minor leagues because they're no longer in their towns and so you know, we're we're uh, swimming upstream here against some of these trends in baseball in the last um, few years. But do you have any kind of strong opinion or read about the way that owners are handling the minor leagues these days? Because this is something that we've talked about a lot, and I feel like it's hard to demystify in in the public because half the time uh, fans aren't even aware of what minor league clubs are associated with their team. Um, and also because they kind of also operate at their as their own businesses as well, as we've seen with how um, MLB clubs have ditched association with them and left them to kind of operate under their own financial um, strictures. Yeah, the, I'll be honest. The structure of the minor leagues, I would leave to guys on the baseball perspective prospects team. They understand that better than I do. But I think one of the masterful PR jobs that MLB has done is somehow making it seem like the Save America's Pastime Act was something that was pushed by minor leagues. The minor leagues really don't care 
unless you're an indie league, they don't care how much players get paid. They don't have to pay the bill. I think that's a key misconception that most baseball fans have is that minor league players are paid by the minor league teams. We know they're not. It's paid by the MLB teams. And by suppressing their wages, that's another way that MLB teams, not minor league teams, MLB teams can back more profits. Alex, how you feel? <laughs> <laughs> this feels like we could. There are a myriad of rabbit holes that we can we can go down with uh, as we as we talk about minor leagues and and wage suppression, which exists on all levels. It's, it exists on the major league level as well. And I think that like there's this kind of um, response from fans who are like, "Well, it's." It's billionaires fighting with millionaires. I don't really right. care who who wins, who makes money at the end of the day. I just want to see baseball being played. And I think that that often obscures the the power dynamics that are really taking place here. And you know, when they're when a, a season is delayed because they can't come to an agreement, is it the the players who are, you know, stalling that because they are demanding their full salaries or is it owners who can in theory um who who have the wherewithal to foot the bill um but just aren't aren't interested in in doing that sort of thing yeah and one of the things about this that kind of mystifies me i think i know what may be going on is why the owners even bother with it because you know it's like they're constantly trying to win a pr war that, oh, we're losing money and we've got all these hardships and we're trying to save the minor leagues and all that sort of stuff. In a way, who cares? It doesn't buy them anything. I mean, it's not, yeah. if, you're, if you're saying in any way that your product is flawed because players make too much or they're making demands, that's not, that's not good for your industry. And the fact that and the Players Association is pretty quiet about these sorts of things, and I don't blame them. Um, Rob Nyer once said that you know, during the 70s and 80s and 90s, when there were serious labor management wars, management kicked players' butts all over the ring. Everybody sided with management against the greedy players, and the players won all the time. You know, they won the 81 strike, they won the 72 strike, they certainly won the 94-95 strike, they won collusion. It's not a PR game. So, why even play that when, in a way, you're kind of diminishing the public's view of your product? I just, you know, I don't get that. I, I think my, my theory is it's because Rob Manfred works for a lot of guys with huge egos who want to be seen well. Because I, I don't think it's, it does them any good to make all these pronouncements, but they keep doing it. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know. <laughs> why even wage that PR battle is like the, the central question to why Alex and I do this podcast. But um, I do think that there is something to be said about the way that they sort of sell hope and they sell community positivity and the, the owners want to um, associate themselves with the, the, the brand, the name on the front of the Jersey and not the name on the back of the Jersey. And the longer that they can keep people coming to the ballpark, caring about the D on the front of the Detroit Tigers instead of the Zimmerman on the back, then I think that in their minds, that's an important hypothetical and theoretical, yes, but 
um, an important thing to continue to be able to sell, you know, to fans and to sponsors as well. That's a great point. The laundry. It's all about the laundry. <laughs> it is all about the laundry. <laughs> um, Rob Maines, the laundry that you're wearing is Baseball Prospectus. Where can people find you? <laughs> what is the easiest way to um, read your wonderful work, work about this topic and about all other topics over there? Uh, baseballprospectus.com is our website. I write a couple articles every week, and there's a lot of other good content uh, covering all of baseball, fantasy, prospects. We have even a Spanish-language section, uh, so check it out. Thank you so much, Rob. Thanks for having me. Okay, thank you again to Rob Maines. We're back in the in the present now, Alex. We're no longer in January of 2021. We're at, we're in January, late January of 2022. Hello, welcome back. It's good to be back. Those time travels always leave me kind of jet lagged. So, yeah, it's very exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, if a collective bargaining agreement was reached <laughs> since in the time that it took. <laughs> Since we put out an episode last Thursday and put out this uh, rerun, man, that's that's a bad break for tipping pitches. The podcast, you know what it is, but it's it's a it's maybe not the worst piece of news to break in the world. And also, it'll give us some time to really collect our thoughts before we hot take about it. This was planned, is what you're saying. Is that we kind of we were intending to give ourselves a bit of space to really digest the details. We're actually pulling the strings of the baseball labor landscape. I don't even know how this works. Um, I'll reveal now in this spot, Alex, that for those listeners who are listening all the way to the end of a rerun, you're a, you're a real homie. I'll reveal now that on our podcast production calendar, which is just a Google spreadsheet, um, you know, we laid out everything that we'd be doing for January and February because I knew I was moving and it was going to be a stressful time. So we wanted to plan every podcast out in advance as opposed to just sitting down on Sunday afternoon and recording for three hours and only 90 minutes of it being anywhere approaching usable. Um, I marked down the first podcast in February as being the podcast that we record in person and also the podcast which we discuss a new labor deal which would be reached tentatively. The, the lockout is over party. <laughs> lockout is over party exactly i was like optimistically mid-december i was like i think that this will be the podcast when the lockout is over and um unless some stuff really changed since we recorded this recorded this podcast on january 25th i was wrong about that big of you here bobby that's that's called accountability straight shooter respected by all yep uh telling it like it is what else can we say go buy some tipping pitches merch uh, go follow Tipping Pitches on Twitter. Go email us, tippingpitchespot at gmail.com. Call our voicemail if you want, 785-422-5881. Other than that, thank you for listening, and we will be back in one week. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping Pitches. This is the one that I love the most. So we'll see you next week. See ya!